I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and today's Superintendent Series interview with Javier Campos. As always, uh, today's Superintendent Series is brought to you by Toro. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shop. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. As mentioned before, today's interview is with Javier Campos. He is the head superintendent at the California Golf Club of San Francisco. Most people know of it as Cal Club. Javier has been there for a number of years. He started working there at age 17, and I think he's got a tremendous backstory in terms of how he got into turf that we get into, but also just I think he's got an amazing story from what he presents day in, day out at the Cal Club. Uh, it is one of the finest conditioned golf courses in all the world. They use fescue grass in the fairways and uh, in the rough and bent grass greens, which is rather unheard of in uh, in this part of California. I had been wanting to talk to Javier for a long time and uh, was really excited to get this, uh, this interview set up and uh, spend some time with him. He's a great guy. Really looking forward to everybody hearing about his uh, his life at Cal Club. So real quick, before we get to the Javier interview, uh, we're going to talk a little bit, a little follow-up from last week's conversation with Joseph Lamagna on Friday. Uh, if you missed that, we uh, we talked about the PGA Tour season thus far, what's been working, what's not been working, and we talked a lot about the designated events. So designated events are the tour's new uh, events that the top players will all attend into. And uh, with the majors and the players, along with the designated events, there will be 17 of them. An idea that spawned off of that, um, it, Joseph had this idea, was to have FedEx Cup points only count for designated events and majors, which I think is a tremendous idea. And I think this, is, uh, this will be a first in Friday history. Well, maybe not quite a first, but we are going to debut our own uh, really spinoff of the FedEx Cup points. We're going to do designated events, FedEx Cup points, and we will keep this tracked on the website as well as social media. But I just wanted to run down, you know, it, it's kind of interesting when you start to look at this. So it, it would be an uh, actually meaningful statistic if they put it together because it would give us an idea of who when they teed it up against the best, played the best in 2023. So far, three events in. One of them is the Century. I think it's important to note that the Century is going to provide a little bit. That's the one that doesn't fit. It didn't have a, a full field. It was a you know a much smaller field. So you know, in terms of the amount of points, they they don't distribute quite as nicely as the other ones. So you know, early in this. Uh, count by the time we get to 17 events it will have normalized out and it won't make that much of a different but difference but early in the season i think it does make a difference those that played in the century event and those that didn't so in terms of the standings as of today the top 10 would be john rom scotty scheffler and just to point out john rom's got double the points of scotty scheffler at this point in the season because uh obviously his his play has been out of this world he's got a uh first two firsts and uh i think he finished third in uh in phoenix so that's just an astounding start so rom scheffler then homa is the third uh ranked player if you go designated events colin morikawa is fourth nick taylor is fifth patrick cantley sixth tom hoagie seventh justin thomas eighth will zal torres ninth and jason day tenth 
That's your FedEx Cup top 10 if you only count designated events. But this is a great idea and something that they should absolutely look at doing when they revamp the schedule in 2024. It just it, it makes too much sense. It it's actually provides a real barometer. Like You know all the big, big players are at these events, so it makes sense to have the points just given out at these events. Have a different set of a point, points for the other events that doesn't always have the best players. It gives us a real clear PGA Tour type of ranking on the year. It'll be really cool if they do it this way. So we wanted to get out and uh, kind of put this out there as uh, more than an idea, put it on paper. So that's your top 10. And uh, now, without further ado, here is Javier Campos. All right. Tell, tell me about this winter here in, in San Francisco. How's it been? It's definitely been one of the uh, one of the rougher ones, I would say. Just uh, I'm probably going to say from the standpoint of how many trees we've lost, I think, between the storms we had, like that three-week stretch, and even last week, I think we're north of like 17 trees now. Um, and, I mean, the cleanup of that, I mean, it's just demoralizing for the guys. I mean, before it's been – in winter's past, it's been like, oh, that's going to repair washouts, you know, spend a t- ton of time doing that. This year, it's been like, all right, let's clean up all these trees. I think we had 11 down at one point um, just as we were finishing. Like, literally last Tuesday morning, I'm like, all right, we're finally done. And then, oh, here come another six trees down. So, our guys are just kind of like done with, with tree work. I mean, it, so it's been tough from that standpoint, but definitely glad that we're getting the rains because – every season has seemed like so long, um, you know, in years past because of the lack of rain. Yeah. I mean, when it, when you get rain, obviously it seems like it's a good thing, but then what complications does the rain create? I think out here, um, especially because during the year we don't have too much time to be doing, you know, a couple extra projects, um, and stuff, you know, I think we're one of the few courses that's open every Monday, uh, during season. So I don't, really have the uh maintenance monday as a lot of guys call it so in the winter time is when i try to uh get into some of these things uh but then when you have you know rain and you know having a rain maybe once a week if i could schedule it out it'd be awesome uh but i can't um but when we get it like that where it's like you know two weeks nonstop, it really just takes away from us you know diving into some of those projects um that we want to do for sure Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a good opportunity to get the guys trained up on stuff that again, we don't get to do during the year. So it's, it's not all bad, but it definitely gets in the way of small projects that I want to attack. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was like, you know, for a while in the winter, it was like historic rains here. Um, did it cause any outside of trees, any huge damage to the course? Um, we've had a issue on our seventh hillside now for some years i'm actually going to say it's like going back uh just right after the renovation and we went in there we did a big repair you know maybe a week before that three-week stretch in a january i think it was when it was raining so much and that's probably been the biggest one this year that that hillside eroded kind of washed into our driving range and you know, you spent the time members see like, Oh, you're doing a ton of work, you know, great. And then the minute they see that it's washed out, they're like, Oh, well you did that for nothing or, you know, whatever you did didn't work, but there's just, you know, you plan for rains. And like I told people the the repair that we made was, you know, to be able to withstand normal rains, but not, you know, what do we have? Like 13 inches, I think in like five days. Um, so definitely wasn't going to withstand that. So that's probably the biggest one we had this year as far as damage. What, um, how do you go about fixing like so for anybody everybody's probably seen like a picture of your seventh hole you know plays kind of along this hill it wraps around it and it's like almost like a canyon on the right side um severe slope that falls down to the range and it's you know mostly it's just native grass on the canyon what type of things can you do to prevent erosion in those areas? And, you know, what are you, how are you guys looking at repairing it? This so one of the around? things we had done um, is just using what probably most guys do, you know, lining up a bunch of sandbags, um, you know, to divert some of the water runoff because it, like you said, it's pretty steep for the amount of water that's coming off of there. Um, but this year what we did is we added, added some herringbone right before those uh, storms, put a channel drain, you know, you, you know, the property kind of around that, uh, native line. And again, we thought that was going to be sufficient. Um, and it, and it wasn't just with the, uh, that amount of rain, but this year, what made matters worse is the erosion caused our two inch irrigation pipe to break. 
And so that just made that uh, canyon that much bigger. Um, so one of the things, you know, we have Frontier Golf out here. And this time they're going to help us just because we don't have the big equipment that's going to be necessary. But they're actually going to add um, a catch basin, a, lar- a much larger catch basin, change the size of the pipe, you know, to trap as much water as actually comes down from that hill. Um, but we actually might shift where we put this stuff down, you know, between the basin and the pipe where it currently sits. We might shift where that's at just because they've kind of found that this is a soft spot on that hill and we've gone there. And I mean, I've been here since then. I'd probably tell you, we'd repair that thing like six times already. And they're like, you know, you keep trying to compact it and, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over. Um, they're like, it's just become somewhat of a soft spot. So we kind of shift where that Canyon currently sits. Um, the, the hope is that we're going to stabilize that soil a lot better. Um, but yeah, their, their plan is to come in with a uh, big equipment key in, you know, everything that they're doing, just compact it just in layers. Like I said, switch the pipe size. Um, but at this point I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm going to let them do it. Cause yeah, everything that we've done, it, do, it hasn't seemed to uh, hold up. Unfortunately, it seems like that, uh, that hillside is like one of the banes of your existence. Cause I remember a few years ago you had like a gopher problem there yeah. or something, right? It's still there. I mean, that's, so we had a soil engineer, um, come out and he actually saw the amount of gopher holes, which when I tell people, you know, Jay Blasey is actually a guy, you know, he, he reached out about, um, you know, what we do to control them. Cause there was a project that he was going to be working on and they had a similar issues, but I don't know if it was with gophers or with squirrels. So I'm like, man, we contract the, uh, the workout because we used to do what most guys do and just use traps. What would happen is guys would forget where they set these traps and, you know, or we'd have coyotes walking off with gophers and just leaving the traps all over the property. Uh, but to this thing on seven hillside, we saw the amount of uh, holes and tunnels that they build when the soil engineer came out and he saw it. He's like, you got to address this gopher issue first, because anytime you got a rain, it would literally create like a cascade of like mud on this hillside. And so we've been trying to address that. Uh, but man, I mean, everywhere else on the golf course seems like we have it under control. But I don't know if that hillside is just that much more active, um, which we're still going to try. And I just hope after they make this repair, it holds up because I don't know what else we could do about these freaking gophers, man. I feel like I'm in that uh, movie. It's Caddyshack. Like, yeah, Caddyshack. <laughs> it's like, we, I don't know. I don't know what else to do about them. I mean, contracting them seemed like it was the last last resort. So let's hope it worked. <laughs> That's the, I mean, it's, it's crazy because like, it's like almost like, I think it's like a perfect encapsulation of, of a job of a superintendent is like you've got this headache of the gophers to start. But then that's like creating a huge, a bigger problem with your erosion on the hill. Yeah. Because like you're you're talking about how like I imagine gophers tunneling around on the hill are making more soft spots and making it easier for that hill to erode on when it rains. Yeah, I mean, because so before we had the problem and it seems like it just keeps moving up closer to the green because one of the bigger repairs we did, you know, again, you, you know, the property where that first fairway bunker is um, where number seven is, that's where we used to have, you know, another canyon kind of built. And so when we went in there, I think it was like four or five years ago, we put in a ton of gopher wire after we, you know, what's um, what's gopher wire. So it's like, I think it just like stainless steel almost looks like a mesh because, um, the way that they design it, I mean, you probably have maybe like a half inch little holes in between. Um, and guys use this in landscaping all the time. I mean, anytime you're going to do like a synthetic uh, turf job, you lay this down over the soil. So as they try to dig up, you know, the, the hopes is that it's like, all right, it's like a barrier. I don't know that anyone's really used it on golf courses. Um, they probably have, but it's so bad out here with the gophers that our, um, our valve boxes that are in our naturalized areas we've wrapped them around with uh, gopher wire now because those little guys like get in there, chew up wires. But on seven, we did a project where we put, you know, like four sheets of this stuff. And I'm sorry, that's probably like 200 square feet, each one of these rolls. And we did it and it's like, all right, great. It worked there. But then they just moved further up onto the uh, hillside, you know, as you get closer to the green. So it just seems like, you know, we can't put wire along that entire hillside. I mean, geez. So I just hope now that what we've done actually uh, actually controls them and we don't have this issue going forward because it's been a pain, man. Well, the, the, <laughs> and you have like all you have like a lot of coyotes. I feel like I've seen coyotes out here a lot. 
And yeah. it's like that's like a predator, and that's not even doing yeah, anything. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, those those coyotes look pretty healthy right now, so I'm sure they they're feasting on them. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't think it's enough. I mean, I, I've had members because they thankfully they see it, you know, and everyone suggests this stuff like bringing hawks out here, bringing owls. I mean, we have hawks, you know, we we seen them out here all the time. We have coyotes, so. Again, I don't know. I think someone even threw out the idea of bringing snakes, but I'm like, geez, I don't want, I don't want to be those people that create some like crazy effect on the habitat here by bringing snakes in or something like that. What's the craziest suggestion? Is snakes the craziest? I think snakes thing? was the craziest, and I forget what kind of snakes it was. I'm sure they were probably harmless to other areas, but I'm like, yeah, what's going to happen when they start reproducing here? It's like, I don't want to battle snakes now. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm sure that they probably dig holes too you yeah see exactly holes all over the place but no I mean, you're literally just gonna you know come in and create another problem i think a, a great story is that when thomas was still here he he hired this guy who uh i don't know he just sold him on the idea that you know he's gonna do a great job i don't i can't recall if it was exactly with gophers or crows because crows are like the other thing we deal with out here that tear up our turf but long story short this guy came out with hawks and he claimed that the hawks were gonna you know help clean up the golf course and get rid of these things well, the guy comes out, you know, I think everybody had a drink in their hand. We go out, we meet uh, by the short game area. And this guy starts just doing like a show with his like birds where he, like, he's like, oh, I'm going to get the bird to fly under your legs. You know, this. and we're like, how, we all expected like a bloodbath, like these hawks going after like the gophers or the crows, whatever it was. And yeah, it was, it was a dud. Like the guy literally just came out here. Super odd guy. I mean, he had a bunch of hawks with him. And all it all they did was just like aerial tricks, and we're like, all right. <laughs> little by little, you saw our members just like leaving this like show that we expected to. I don't know, but like I said, be a bloodbath, and it's like, yeah, no, this didn't work out. So <laughs> you thought he was gonna <laughs> fix a problem? Oh, yeah. and he was there to give you a hawk show, a, a wild bird that, show. That's all it turned out to be. He's like, yeah, you guys could hire me. It's like, no, we're not looking to have aerial shows out here. <laughs> um, you got a, uh, you've got a little bit different background, I think, getting into your job here as the superintendent at Cal Club than than I, not you know, some superintendents, and uh, it's, a, I think, it's an interesting one can you walk us through how you got started working here and uh and kind of like you know uh how you got into turf and golf yeah i mean i think you know as i was telling you monday the funny part is i didn't even know this was actually a golf course and i've lived you know somewhere in this area for the longest time um there's a library right next door you know i probably went to like twice um but when I was working at JCPenney, at that time, my sister was, you know, dating someone that was already working here, which, you know, now, now they're married. So I have to see him every day. Um, <laughs> but he's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're hiring. Come on by. It was like the summer. I think I was I was 17 at that time. And I was telling people, I was like, man, I was making seven twenty five at JCPenney. And then here they were offering 10. I was like, Dude, I'll, I'll take it. You know, I, but I was looking at it as just a just a summer job. I think at that time I probably had like three of my buddies that were going to do the whole police Academy thing. And I was like, that might be something I do, you know, but in the meantime, I'm going to get this job. And I remember I showed up and I, um, I always remind Thomas was like, I came in like jeans and like a button dress shirt. And then first thing out of time, I was like, why are you so dressed up? He didn't even know me. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I'm like, you know, trying to get a job. And he's like, well, do you have any experience? I'm like, you know, I've cleaned yards and stuff. Um, He's like, what are you looking to do? I was like, yeah, summer job. You know, I want to be a cop. And he literally, cop? Like, that was his reaction. It was like, so from, from the get-go, I, I knew what it was going to be like to work with a with Thomas. But, you know, just fast forward. I had a great summer. Right away, started feeling like, man, this is something I can uh, I can do. Um, what, but again, what, I, go ahead. what do you think uh, appealed to you? Or if you can go back early on, like, what was it about the job that you, like, really drew your interest when you started doing it? Yeah, I think the fact that, um, you know, th the way that I kind of progressed uh, pretty quickly. And at that time we had, you know, I, I say like some really good assistants. You know, I, I worked under uh, Matt Molenbrook, uh, Grant Johnson um, at that time. And those guys are really the ones, you know, when I got involved with like whether it was just flagging greens for them when they were spraying. I just thought that whole process was like all pretty cool. And then they started telling me that there's actually career opportunities for this because I didn't know. I thought they were just assistants because they moved up, but I didn't know even had to go to school for this and all this. But they really started kind of getting in my ear. And then Thomas, but it wasn't really until the renovation. Um, so what year about did you get hired? I got hired in 04. 04. Yeah. So you, this was, you were here when there was a pond and. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I was here, the ponds and all the hedges around 12 and all that good stuff. I just actually gave someone a tour the other day inside the clubhouse and showed them all that. And I was like, man, I just can't believe they had done this to the golf course. Um, but yeah, in 06, you know, just uh, when we were starting with the, uh, with the rena- renovation, I don't know, just something about working those long hours, just really seeing how we just tore everything up and just started putting it back together. Like at that point, it really hit me like, dude, this is like super cool. Like how cool would it be to actually get a career in this? And I remember telling Thomas, like, I think this is what I want to end up doing. And he ended up telling me, he's like, just don't waste my time. He goes, and I'll I'll show you everything you want to do. And during the renovation, uh, that's what it was. I mean, it was literally trying and getting into all different aspects of it um, that were going on. And I, and I really think that's what, uh, that's what really kind of just turned something on in my head. I'm like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do for a living, but it, you know, like you were talking about my career path. There was a time, you know, as you know, in golf where like there was no jobs and it just seemed like it wasn't going to turn out to be a great career, but we ended up going through with it. Um, and I ended up doing the program at Rutgers. Um, and was then, that online or I actually had in, to move there. You, yeah. You um, moved to New Jersey. Yeah. That was terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just feel like unless you're from over there, I mean, I don't know. I'm biased. I mean, I've been in California my whole life, but uh, I remember, I think it was 2013, the first year I went, and that was when Hurricane Sandy had just hit. I don't know if that was my first or second year. I can't recall, but I had never been to Jersey, and, and I see on the news, it was minus 17 wind chill, and I remember taking off, and I was just wearing like a hoodie here because I just told my wife, I was already married at the time. I'm like, how cold could that actually be? I'm just literally going to exit the airport, catch a cab. Dude, I was freezing. Like it was like my chest was hurting. Like I remember telling her about. It. I'm like, yeah, that was bad. Like that was the worst cold I've, I've experienced. So I learned quick. Um, but I, remember, I always tell people like my experience with it because I got stuck in this like tiny, like the whole room was just pinstripe. This guy was a Yankees fan. This house that we were renting, uh, you know, two other roommates. But I was the last one to arrive to Jersey, so they chose the best rooms. Um, and I got stuck in this like prison looking room where it was all pinstripes in the walls and it was just a tiny desk and I'm, it was like depressing. Like I remember telling my wife, I was like, I got the, I got the worst card here. You know, um, did you have kids at that time too? No, just, uh, just married. Um, and it was, yeah, trust me. It, it was hard enough. I was like three and a half or four months that, that we did that. Um, so I did that, you know, we'd come back do the, you know, work here, get the work experience and then just went back to, uh, finish out the, uh, the second year. But, you know, we both talk about it now is a sacrifice that was super worth it. I think people are like, why didn't you just do it online? But I'm like, I don't know. I just thought that was a route. I think Josh Smith had just done it too. And I just heard from guys. It was, it was a good program. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't work good. I thought it was great. So you work here for, if you did that, so you were here for like nine years and you'd moved yourself up and it, at that point the turf school was a natural thing to do just to continue to progress. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and cause, cause I mean, that was a whole thing. Like I was, it was different in the sense that I hadn't even completed the school, but Thomas made me an assistant. He's like, but as part of it, you know, you got to go finish this. And I always say, you know, the fact that the club stepped up, you know, I don't have any school debt from that. I mean, they took care of everything at that time. We actually had a new general manager of coming in Glenn, because everything was, you know, a verbal agreement. Thomas was like, you know, you'll go, we'll pay for your school, you know, your housing there and all this stuff. But we want you to stay here at least two years after you finish school as, you know, a way to kind of pay us back, if you will. But then, I mean, Glenn didn't even know me at that time. Thomas went to him, asked, and yeah, I mean, the rest is history. Glenn approved of everything. And yeah, su- super fortunate that it did work out that way. But I thought I was done with school, you know, at that time. But then, sure enough, I, I get back. You know, I'm, I'm working. I'm happy. I'm an assistant. And me and Thomas are out for a run one time, and you know, we start talking about school again. And he's like, "No, you should still consider getting a four year degree." He's like, "You know, because you want to be competitive. If one day you want to, you know, move up, you know, whether it's here or elsewhere." I mean. I don't hate school, but I also don't love it. And so to hear like, yeah, you should work on a bachelor's degree now. And so when my daughter went, uh, was born, that's when I started, you know, working towards my bachelor's degree, which I'll be done in May. Thankfully it's, it's been a long one. <laughs> I told my wife I could, I could have been a doctor. How long online, been or are you doing that in person? That, that one I, uh, so my schedule was crazy. Like when I first started that, um, I was doing classes, going there, coming to work, going back at night, you know, for classes, so my schedule was all over the place initially, but then when I started, um, 
call it what for most people is like the last years once you're past like all your ge and stuff i've done that part all online um it's a business program that i was able to get into that offered that flexibility which has been awesome man Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. Americans like our utility vehicles the way we like our U.S. Open courses. Rugged. A winner needs to do it all in tough conditions. And Toro's new Workman UTX line is here to get the job done. Any job. Snow and ice removal, tree maintenance, transporting equipment or materials. Whatever you need, this commercial-grade, smooth-riding, four-wheel drive monster has your back. The Workman UTX's proprietary governing system unpairs ground speed and RPM, so the operator can limit the machine's speed without gutting the power. Higher RPMs when more oomph is required, less RPMs and less fuel consumption when it isn't. That kind of all-around performance is what champions are made of. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Now back to Javier. Do you ever think about how you like got introduced to the game of golf, like not knowing really anything? Do you think that was beneficial to your uh, growth in turf, like by actually not having any like pre-existing knowledge of the game? Yeah, I mean, are you referring to like actually playing or no, no, just just your profession? Yeah, I I think so because I think uh, I probably start viewing everything more from like a maintenance standpoint. what once I was actually introduced to it, so it's weird. I mean, and also I will say it's it's an effect of like the people that I worked with. Um, I always give Josh, you know, who's over at Arena, a ton of credit. And like when I got introduced to golf, it always came with like looking at certain details and working with guys like that. You know, George, you know, who was one of the shapers, good, really good friend as well. Getting introduced to the game of golf and having such like great minds, if you will, kind of explain certain things too. It was like. I just got the best of everything. You know, I started learning about the game of golf itself, but also like, you know, architecture and all this stuff from these uh, guys, you know, maintenance and, you know, agronomy from Thomas. So I had like a really good group that got, that introduced me into golf. So yeah, I I got to see it from so many different perspectives, um, not just, you know, coming up and from the maintenance crew and just seeing the day-to-day operations. So yeah, it, it was great in that standpoint. It, it's interesting because, like, uh, you know, Bill, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw, like a, a fair amount of their shapers and and people that have worked for them come from like construction backgrounds yeah. and aren't into golf until they get into that jo- into that job, and then you know, and it's it's uh it's almost like you you just I feel like so many people want careers in golf because they like playing golf and then they get in and maybe they like see a side of the game that they don't like, you know, and don't maybe don't play as much as they want to. And, and then, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? Yeah. If if I would have got into golf because I played, I would have hated it because yeah, (laughs) it's so frustrating. It's like, I always tell people it's probably the most frustrating sport that I've attempted to play. So no, I think the fact that I got into it and introduced to it. And like I said, just, kind of learn how to see it from all uh from all angles um yeah i think that was to me the best way to have been introduced to it it seems like i obviously and this is uh not uh, groundbreaking but you know just from listening to you talk thomas bassis uh the superintendent here was obviously a, a big part of of your life and yeah. and developing like what part of his leadership do you think about and and admire the most in in getting you to where you are today sure there's a, a few but i definitely think one of them that um comes to mind the most is his uh, organizational skills because man i mean ever since he was here it was like you know a calendar for this a calendar for that you know we'd have a, a yearly calendar all those are things that you know i've still maintained i mean i've probably added like a couple more to the list and stuff but it was just always super important um that he always says like if you have a good plan you know, you're not reacting, you know, as you would always call it shooting from the hip. Like you always have a plan in place. Um, and that way, if you do have to make, you know, some type of audible or something, even those things you're already ready for, you know? So I think the organizational aspect, um, is huge. And also just, uh, trying to promote and trying to train guys. I mean, I think that's, uh, I think that's what I really enjoyed about working with Thomas because our relationship, we got along well, cause we were into similar things, you know, he's always been 
crazy about like the workout stuff. I, I don't ride bikes or do any of that stuff, but I was always into, you know, like rock climbing at that time. So I think that really like helped create the relationship. So it was like talking points that we always had, you know, but seeing how he kind of incorporated that into his lifestyle, like the discipline, you know, where it was like work and then he was still making the time to like do his workouts. So I know for some people that's not a big deal, but it really showed that it's like, all right, you can have, you know, a big job and still do everything that you liked, but it always came back to being organized. Like if you're not organized, you don't have time to do all that stuff. You'd be all over the place. Um, so it's kind of to see that. Um, and really during the renovation, seeing the different skill sets he had was like, dude, that's pretty cool. Like you, you could literally jump on any piece of equipment, um, and be able to operate that, be able to show your guys how to do that. So that became another thing for me where I'm like, I really need to get good at, I guess, everything that you do on a golf course. And I mean, you saw when you got here, we were like training guys because I really feel like you can't teach guys unless you yourself know how to do pretty much everything that you need to do on a, on a golf course. Um, so I think, I think from that standpoint with Thomas, it was that like the organization and just like different skill set that you have to have as a superintendent, uh, to be successful. Obviously one of the huge issues with, with, uh, you know, there's a bunch of issues with, uh, maintaining golf courses in Northern California in particular, but one of them, I think you hit on a little bit, uh, is labor and the idea of developing guys. Cause it, you know, it, it stands out because it's hard enough to find people to work. You know, it's probably, you know, it's becoming more and more important to develop them, you know, and develop skills and, and make, yeah. you know, the people that you hire, you know, more valuable over time. Like, what are the types of ways that you guys go about developing talent? I think here, you know, first off with labor, I tell guys we're, we're in a good place because a lot of times a guy will be like, hey, I know someone that wants to work and it tends to be like family and stuff. So my problem almost ends up being like, I can't hire um, everybody, you know, that that's one, but how we develop them is just, I think the fact that I speak Spanish, you know, and this is why I tell my assistants learn it because especially in California, if you're not able to understand your crew, um, it's not just giving them certain jobs and, oh yeah, they understood what I told them, but it's actually understanding what they value. Um, I think the fact that I have that relationship with guys where, I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised, like not all guys want to get paid more. I mean, everybody likes more money, right? But the point I'm making with that is some guys have actually will tell you, like, I just want to learn how to do a bunch of different things. Um, so really understanding what those guys value is what is made it easier where it's like, all right, you know, I'm going to train you in this, you know, train you how to do that. And it, to some guys, it's just a lot more important, uh, to develop a bigger skill set than just, you know, offering them more money and stuff. But I go back to, if you're not able to communicate and get to know the guys, um, from that standpoint, you're not really going to know how, how they want to be developed or, Honestly, some guys are just happy doing what they're doing. Like some guys are happy with just jumping on a rough mower and just letting them ride out into the sunset with that. But other guys, you know, I have a guy uh, who I tell people every day, like he could be someone's assistant right now. Problem is like he doesn't have the turf, you know, degree. You know, he doesn't speak great English, but he sprays all of our greens for us. He does all that stuff. But he's a guy that when I talked to him, he said, I just want to learn how to do a lot of different things. And he's, he's there. I mean, he's pretty much working side by side with my assistants now. I mean, doing everything. So I think from that standpoint, just being able to understand those guys and that's, what's made it easier to develop people. That makes sense. You, you know, like what motivates different employees, you know, no matter what profession you're in yeah. is completely different. Like everybody, everybody has different things that yep. get them going and it makes sense. Like, you know, the only way you find that out is by communicating with them. Right. Yeah. And, um, it, you guys just in the recent past, you've built a brand new maintenance facility. We're sitting in it now. Um, what types of things did you guys think about when building this with like kind of like, you know, setting you guys up to have like a great maintenance program? Like what were the things that went into building this? Because I imagine you were highly involved with like the, the yeah. planning and everything. Yeah, I think most importantly was just the efficiency. I mean, efficiency in the sense that anyone that came out to Cal Club before, I mean, the amount of tents that were scattered across the parking lot, I mean, you had to grab a trailer in one tent and then go across the parking lot, grab your mower. And then you know, just imagine like when you don't have a one-stop shop to grab everything, like guys were forgetting stuff all the time. And you know, our usual start time is like 5.30. It could be 6.30 and guys were still in the parking lot. 
and you really couldn't blame them because it's like, well, where's this at? Where's that? We didn't really have a specific place for anything. It was like, all right, we'll try to put all the tools in one tent. Uh, let's try to have all the t- mowers in another tent. Um, so, man, so the fact that, believe it or not, I mean, some members still didn't think it was like an urgency to do. I mean, it just blew my mind. Um, so, I mean, that was the biggest uh, thing, in my opinion, I think efficiency. But the other was like crew morale. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, now I can laugh about it. But our restrooms over there in the parking lot, like we were in a trailer, like a two wide trailer. And we had like a restroom naturally, but it was just a holding tank where they had to come and clean it out like three times a week. I think they were probably almost doing like, it two like times. A, you would run into it like a music festival or a sporting exactly. event, right? It's like, like a like one of those like temporary toilets. Yeah, and that's not what you want your uh, you know that's not what you want your crew to be doing. I mean, I remember sometimes that thing would overflow, uh, and we'd have to lay pallets down and like walk across, you know, to be able to get into the trailer. And I remember it wasn't until I showed a board member when he was our club president at that time pictures and he's like oh my god i didn't know that that's what you guys had over there like members just assumed like they have a restroom it's a normal restroom this and that but it wasn't until you started showing those pictures and like getting into detail about what the guys were dealing with that all jokes aside i mean that, that was terrible the guys were that was their lunchroom but you'd have this like overflow that you know all the stench was coming in there it's like some guys would eat in their cars so morale and efficiency was just like, man, we, we got to get this done. And so now, I mean, when, when everyone asks and you talk to our guys, uh, my biggest concern when we moved down here was, you know, our guys going to be able to like flip that switch, take care of the building. Cause they're so used to just leaving everything laying around. Um, but they were, I mean, I think, you know, we, we drilled it into them, you know, Hey, the membership is making this huge investment for you guys for, you know, all these, you know, reasons. Uh, but when they moved in here, I mean, you, you see it in the building now. I mean, they, they've really taken ownership. Like I said, I mean, the, the morale, I mean, it speaks for themselves. Like the guys are just happy that they have some more. They could just eat lunch during COVID. You know, it was a big deal. I mean, we even have like outdoor seating, you know, out here. So yeah, it's just, it's been the best thing. And I mean, yeah, we are super efficient now because I think we've been here just uh, more than two years, but we just little by little, you know, we've made tweaks on how to just get more organized. But now you almost see when the guys come in, it's just like, you know, a half circle, if you will, when they come in between grabbing trailers, mowers, you know, blowers, whatever it is, and they're out the building. Um, but again, before I was saying 5.30, we'd start, guys would be in the parking lot at 6.30. Guys are out the door here by like 5, you know, 45, whatever, and, and they're out there doing their first job. So mm-hmm. what what is, uh, you guys added uh, on-site housing um, here. So you have some rooms that that staff stayed how has that helped with you know um recruiting retention yeah no for sure i mean um initially i mean because when we moved in um it was just when i think covid was starting so that really affected how many interns we were actually able to get uh but like so right it's now for interns or yeah assistants? it was mostly for interns i mean but it, especially when assistants were moving in here from like out of state um that's when we offered it um so i had an assistant when he moved here he lived in the building for six months so we have six dorm rooms we decided because the pro shop, you know, uh, they sometimes want to bring, you know, guys from outside as well. So two rooms are usually dedicated to the pro shop staff, you know, whether it's an intern or an assistant. And then the other four rooms are designated for us. You know, I have uh, three guys plus one of the guys from the pro shop living here currently. In March, we get uh, two new interns. So it's just it's been great to actually offer to guys like the guys that are coming in March are from Ireland. So wow. Yeah. So the minute turf you, interns, yeah, they're turf interns. Um, one of them for sure I know is from Ireland. Um, and so when you're actually able to send these guys photos of where they're going to be staying, I mean, if, if I was like 21 and someone said, Hey, you don't have to pay for a single thing. You know, we equip the rooms like pretty nicely. Um, for that reason, like the guys just jump at it right away. I mean, you're on property. You don't ever have to drive anywhere if you, if you don't want to. So uh, it's, it's been, uh, it's been easy to sell it to guys, you know, when, when we're offering that, especially living in the Bay area, because yeah. if you try to come out here and rent even a one bedroom, I mean, you're probably looking at more than two grand easily. Um, so to be able to tell, you know, 20 some year old or whatever age, like, Hey, you can ha- be housed here for free. You got a comfortable place to stay. I mean, they're, they're all in. Yeah. I imagine uh, even with assistance, it's nice that uh, you said you had assistant that stayed in, in here for six months. It's like just to save up so you could, you yeah. know, afford a place that, that you want to last month. Uh, it's pretty expensive in the bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys do something. Obviously you're a, um, you know, like as you alluded to seven days a week, all year round, you know, golf doesn't stop here, which I think puts a, puts a big strain on all staff. 
at courses that don't really have an off season. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you guys have instituted is a two week like maintenance break where the club closes down and you guys yeah. do like intensive maintenance work. Talk us through what that those two weeks look like from your end. And obviously like those are two weeks off yeah, for you guys. No. Like, you know, it's still, you still have the same problem where you don't really have days off, but you know, like what does that two weeks do and what impact has it made on the golf course since you instituted that? Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, just what you just said, I mean, I, we still have to be here, but it's always funny when airification is coming up, you know, I'll have members like, Oh, what do you, what are your plans during airification? Cause that's when everybody takes off, you know, even the pro shop staff takes golf trips. I'm like, uh, I'm going to be here. It was like, we're, we still have to work. Like you don't come back and everything's just like done. Um, but for us, I mean, we get 11 days. I mean, that's, that's been huge. I mean, we started with just having the one day, um, off for airification if that, and you know, we've just progressed to, to 11, but the first call it four or five days of that. It's just doing our entire airification process. You know, now we, we pull cores on fairways, you know, we, we do it on the greens, um, and surrounds and stuff. But once, once we wrap that up and I'm really good about showing the membership too, what we've been up to, it's a great time to get in and do whether it's details in your bunkers, you know, we get to do some edging, um, on bunkers again, just small projects that you weren't able to do during the season. You get those 11 days where, you know, we, we go through the entirety of like the natives get, get after weeds and everything. Um, so there's always like a bunch of projects, but like the first four or five days are always literally just for airification. And after that, it's, you know, what has been on the docket that we haven't got to, you know, we've done everything from tree planting or taking trees down, you know, when members are out stuff that we really don't want to be interfering with, especially, uh, when we airify in August, because by the time guys come back, labor day is when we say the golf course has to be back, you know, fully healed from airification, you know, not be in the middle of any like big projects or anything like that. So you can imagine, I mean, we usually airify like the second week of August. So by Labor Day, when guys come back, we're not, we're not really going to be doing many projects. So you almost have to try and get everything done within those uh, 11 days. So yeah, got guys stay uh, pretty busy. I mean, we run a ton of overtime, like I said, but it ends up being worth it. I mean, because the members really see by the time they come back, how much work we actually uh, got done, you know? So it, it's, it's, it's definitely something that I, I hope we, keep and I, I think we will keep going forward what what do you think the difference in terms of like how many projects you're able to do when there's like i'm just curious like no golfers for 11 days versus you know a regular 11 day stretch what would you say in terms of like you know like work that you're able to done is there like a percentage you could apply to it yeah i mean you know I, probably the fact that i know we're airifying i mean that's that's an easy one you know that's probably not something you're going to be doing um when your members are here, but project wise, I'd probably say, I mean, you're probably doing like 60 to 70% of your projects within those like 11 days. Um, because we've done everything from regrassing like hillsides, you know, or prepping like certain areas, you know, say it is a piece of fairway that you want to redo. Um, and I put more of it of like how long it's going to take you to do, because when members are here, you know, it's the constant stopping, you know, when, because God forbid you say you're going to close a hole or something like that. So I think you literally take a project that you can finish with nobody here in like two days rather than take a full week, you know, or almost like seven days, you know, whatever I talk about a full week in like five days, but sometimes things get stretched out. Um, a good example is, you know, we redid some of our, uh, surrounds, like some of our callers that get really beat up from traffic. You know, again, you know, the property, like the right of number 12, you know, that's just such, uh, narrow uh, walkway there for members like along the green where everybody walks everybody yeah. exits off the green in the same spot exactly and so those are areas that when we talk about like having those 11 days where we're closed if i were to go try and do that project you know even start on a monday uh because of the amount of traffic like that's probably going to take you like three or four days to knock out the entire right side but when you're closed you knock it out in like half a day probably and because now my staff doesn't have to go mow fairways they don't have to go rake bunkers I can actually throw a ton more guys at certain uh, projects and just get it done that much faster. You guys were using the Club Cadet autonomous mowers for your greens. And then like they just like kind of like vanished out of business. Yeah. Like I, they just like discontinued it one day. What was what did you like about the autonomous green mowers? And then what was the transition back to like not having them like? I think what I liked uh, best about it is because we still, you know, we still handpick Poe out here. I mean, it's not a bunch, but when we had those autonomous mowers, 
it was nice that the mowers is like literally, you know, mowing. It was doing all the work. And at that time, the guy was just dedicating, you know, maybe it was like at that time, like five, 10 minutes to just kind of scan for seed heads, checking stuff in the surrounds. Go ahead. So just so everybody has a little bit more context, it's like these mowers would just mow the green, right? And so somebody would drive a cart, basically have the the mower on the cart, drive to the green, put the mower, you put the mower on the green and then it goes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would each mower, you know, to mow green on average was probably like 25 uh, minutes. So it was 25 minutes that that guy had where instead of sitting on a mower. Oh yeah. Yeah. So instead of that guy having to tend to it and the only thing, so I'll get into like the negative part, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, of having those mowers, but on the positive side for us was the fact that a guy could do all these extra things without having to take that extra time, you know, whether it was fixing ball marks properly, um, you know, checking posts, starting the bunker, we have 156 bunkers out on the course, you know, that the guys have to be doing day to day. So any extra time we had for that, um, you know, because of these autonomous mowers was great. The downside of them was the weight. I think there were over 700 pounds like per mower because of all the batteries and stuff. So being fine fescue on the surrounds, I mean, they'd really take a beating. So we had to start uh, using uh, turning boards at the time, which now we, it was great because now we actually still use them. But that was the only thing because guys still have to tend the turning boards. So it's not like you could really completely get off the green. They're really, to me, on on my end, like there wasn't too many negatives with, thing, with the mowers aside from the weight and the pressure that they put on the collars uh, because of that. But yeah, it made us way more efficient. But when we did lose them uh, and guys had to start walk mowing again, some guys were actually happy. Um, I think I'm one of those like, there's something about like mowing your own greens, um, you know, also because without getting into too much, sometimes when it was windy, which is very windy out here at times, the autonomous mowers would have issues because it would make uh, interference with the signal, the RTK signal. And so you sometimes end up with like a skip or huge overlaps because of that. Um, cause the mower would try to compensate as much as it could. But then when it was done, the guy would have to take that mower, which was super bulky and go try and fix, you know, some of these, cause you're not going to leave skips all over the greens. So when it was windy, guys hated them. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, man, I have to go re mow like 10 passes anyway. Um, so now that we have, you know, we're back to walk mowing, uh, like most everybody, I think guys are happy with that because it's like, all right, I'm going to mow the green. I'm going to have to worry about re mowing it. Um, and there's also something to be said that if a guy's mowing every pass, I feel like his eyes are like just way more on that green than just scanning it when he goes in there and just like blows it off, you know, or, or ch- is checking ball marks. Um, so for that standpoint, it's better. And also the weight, because now on the collars, like we still use turning boards. Cause I think that really taught us that, you know, it's, it's a great tool just to keep the fescue uh, healthy and from getting super worn. But you know, you're talking 700 pounds versus a mower that's, you know, probably just under 200 pounds. So it, it makes quite a difference for us. And, and I think from that standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm happy uh, getting back to the, the old school way, if you will. What, um, in, in terms of what do you think about, obviously autonomous is, I think, a big part of the future of turf. What do you, what would you be most excited about, about auto- autonomous? It seems like greens may be not the best spot for them, but like where, what what parts of the golf course would you most like to see autonomous mowers or uh, autonomous technology yeah. help out? I think because we collect clippings. I mean, I know he talks about fairways I and mean, getting the fairways mode is great, but we collect clippings, and so I feel like what is it, what do you what do you do with the clippings? Why do you collect them? So it it became so when we first reopened after the the renovation, we we're probably like most people like we weren't collecting clippings on the fairways, but we started seeing. I mean, NorCal is just POA heaven. I mean, yeah. if you want to grow POA, you know, as we were told by consultants, I mean, this is a perfect place to do it. So uh, when we first opened, we never collected clippings, but we did notice, I mean, you're just flinging a ton of seed head out there when, when you do have POA, you know, on the fairways. Um, so when we started collecting, you know, and other parts of programs and stuff that we were incorporating at that time, we saw a huge improvement, um, you know, with that. So that's one of the main reasons why we do collect. And we also don't like putting the clippings back out onto the the course, you know, we like keeping things really lean, you know, keeping things really clean. So when we started collecting clippings, it became a thing where we start in the fairways, we do the same thing on our surrounds. So autonomous would be great, but the reality is like, I still have to have a guy there tending uh, to that, but you know, we'll see once, once we get there, I know there's a couple fairway mowers out there, you know, in the UK that guys are using, but for me, it would be the rough because at least in the rough, I know, 
I mean, you literally send this thing out and, you know, the fact that you're not going to have to worry about dumping the clippings because we don't do it in the rough, um, but we have one inch rough and these new autonomous mowers, I mean, you know, I saw a demo at the show. I mean, man, they're, they're mowing at like heights of like 250, you know, so if I, if I can just have, you know, say five of these things, you know, which is what I'm hearing that guys have to be able to mow their roughs. That's just one or two guys that I don't have to worry about anymore. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about maintenance on a large piece of equipment, the cost of equipment, you know, how quickly it's rising. And again, the labor costs. So to me, the roughs would be like the best area where here at Cal Club, we could incorporate them and have good success with it. Yeah. And like you, you said, with the green stuff, it's all of a sudden you have labor that's freed up to do something yeah. else like and it's just getting yourself more closer to doing project work as opposed to daily yeah. maintenance work um let, let's talk a little bit so you you've alluded to it but you guys are um one of the few places in northern california that maintain uh fine fescue uh greens and fairways uh it's uh fairways pretty much all playing services yeah. fescue and then the bent grass greens bent grass greens so how have you guys gone about the uh kind of like day-to-day maintenance of it it's obviously something that people are like oh we can't do that we can't do that and and kept it you know where i think most people are always amazed that you guys have i mean if you come to san francisco everybody talks about the playing surfaces at cal club and i you know i think that's like but like what what are the things that go into uh maintaining it and what are the biggest challenges i think uh you know as far as what goes into it i always tell people I think fescue and bent grass, and I always say it, it, it's what works for our property because you know, I, we, anytime we sometimes describe stuff, you know, we get the oh no, that that wouldn't work. But so I, I just want to be very clear that it's like it's what's worked for us. But with the fescue specifically, it's really keeping it lean because you know I I tell people you have to know what fescue is and it isn't. Like if you think like oh I have the weather conditions I could grow fine fescue, you know I'd be fine. But the minute you try and treat it like, you know, a ryegrass or a grass that needs like, you know, heavy amounts of inputs, like fescue, you don't need to be putting a ton of end down for it. Like it performs best when you almost leave it alone. Like just, just let it be. I mean, there's guys that I reached out to, um, you know, and first taking over because I was really interested in like, how can I make the services even better? And the, mostly from the guys that I talked to, they said, just let it be like, you know, back off on growth regulators make sure, you know, you're applying N at the right times of year. It's just very minimal quantities. Like these guys and literally nitrogen, said, right? Yeah. Nitrogen. Okay. Um, I mean, these guys were saying you can almost just focus on like when you're getting heavy amounts of play, uh, you know, maybe you want to be specific to where your traffic areas are to applying your N because the thing is fine fescue is a big thatch producer. Um, and I think Sometimes people think because it's a fine, you know, leaf, it doesn't, but no, it's a big thatch producer. Um, so when you're adding a ton of nitrogen and stuff, you know, well, now you're adding to that, especially, you know, the other thing is, do you want to be mowing your, your grass a bunch of times? Because fine fescue is not a grass that, you know, if you kept lean, you don't, you're not going to be mowing it a ton. So that's from one standpoint is making your, making sure you're keeping it pretty lean, so you're not having to do these things, you know, like mowing it a bunch, like regulating it a bunch. Um, who and- who did you, I'm just curious, like when you reached out, you said you reached out to people, like who were you reaching out to? Because obviously it's not like a very popular grass in no. America. Um, so I, I reached out uh, to uh, guys uh, at that time. It was the Island Golf Club. I think I was in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, I reached out to, uh, you know, call it coast to coast Ken up abandoned who I should say, I mean, I hadn't even met him in person, but the fact that I reached out to him, he was like so cool about like just sharing information, everything from like mowing heights, you know, uh, fertility practices and all this stuff, top dressing. So I mean, you could see, I mean, I, I just really went, um, I think the guy is called Festuka man on, on Twitter too, uh, Dave Haspel, um, talking to those guys. And I mean, I got those connections thankfully through, uh, Thomas, but Again, I mean, just those are the guys that are known for growing like great fescue because in California, I, I don't know that anybody else is growing like a full fine fescue golf course. And that's always been the challenge because when you talk to these guys, they're also built on sand dunes, you know, and they start telling you that it's like, hey, just also take this with a grain of salt because we're a different growing environment. They're on coast. Um, so you almost have to take what they tell you and see how you can best apply it here. But I think for for the fescue, that was one of the biggest things that I had to do. I had to go outside and ask, you know, more people to see what are the different things that they do and the water management, uh, 
side of things became, I think, a huge component for us. I think now that we're probably as best staffed as we have been in several years, we've really gone away from just relying on overhead irrigation. We're now, you know, before it was like, oh, rely on the overhead irrigation supplement with uh, hand watering. Well, now it's kind of the opposite. Like I'll have five or six guys in the summer on any given day hand watering. And at night it just becomes like supplementing with that. So I think from the water management aspect, that's been huge to keep the, uh, the surfaces as firm as they are. But with the greens, it's kind of similar too. We're big on minimal disruption. Like we've never vertical greens out here uh, for bank grass. I know a lot of guys, you know, I've been told like, oh, there, there's no way you, you can't do that. But again, I'm just telling people what we do here. We brush greens, you know, to, to maintain density. And there's, you know, there's a whole lot of, uh, that goes into that from timing to when you do it to, to how often, but for us, that's, what's worked. We keep the greens really lean, um, as well. Um, and as far as mowing, like mowing traffic, rolling traffic, that's another thing we try to minimize. I mean, I think during season, I probably mow greens like three, maybe four times a year in the winter time. You're like doing it once a week, sometimes once every other week or something like that. But it's just understanding when you need to do something. And, and more importantly, again, I'll say is when you don't need to do something. So a lot of it's just like not doing stuff, I, I, yeah. you know, I mean, when I think about what you're talking about with fescue, it seems like less, less inputs. <laughs> so less, you know, chemicals that you're putting into the grass. So it's, you know, in terms of like, obviously you have more handwork that needs to be done for yeah. it, um, where you're going to be paying labor costs on that. On but, the green, on the green side. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. But then in terms of the 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 grass itself, less chemical inputs, less water. Yep. Um, it's in, in a substantially better playing surface if you can pull it off. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and again, I mean, maybe I'm biased because, you know, we're here, but I mean, you do see the difference. I mean, you, you see it when you play when you play in, in the summertime um, here, how guys will right away say, I mean, it's it's a very hard uh, surface to hit off of because you're not really getting the bounce that you mm-hmm. do, uh, you know, as if you were playing off of ryegrass. But that's one of the things that makes it challenging out here. Uh, that makes it fun to manage. What's the soil profile like on the property, and is it consistent throughout, or like you know, there's a there's a good amount of elevation in kind of different pockets of the golf course. Does it vary throughout? Yeah, I think. I mean, after we uh, went through the renovation. I think it made it a lot more consistent, but I, I do think you guys did a sand cap, right? Or did I you wouldn't not? call it a sand cap, you know, especially by definition, but they, uh, they tried, uh, mimicking, like, I think they said at the time, like seven or 10 years of top dressing and the way they did as they did add sand over the top, but they actually tilled the sand into the profile. So it wasn't just left on top, you know, uh, as most guys would call it like four or five inches, you know, whatever guys end up going with. So that actually, uh, created a much better growing environment and so there's a couple holes though like holes 15 through 18 that seem like they have a lot more uh clay um in them and maybe that was just the way that you know materials were end up uh ended up uh being dispersed during the renovation but those holes are holes that the soil is a lot richer you know and a great example of what I, how we see this too is during the season if we mow all the fairways just once a week and they're fine with that holes 15 through 18. We have to go out there and mow them a second time because that's how much they're growing. And that's how much the soil is impacting that. I'm always fascinated about how like you have like these like different quirks and corners of your property that react yeah. completely differently to, to everything. Um, but Hey, you know, I really appreciate the time and um, it's always, uh, I think anybody that's ever been out here would uh, tes- testify that it's uh, it's an incredible pleasure to play Thanks, at a place man. that's um, so meticulously maintained on a, on a daily basis. Like, you know, it, it's, um, it's really uh, incredible and uh, thank you for uh, coming on and sharing your story. Thanks a lot for having me, Andy. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. And thank you to Javier for coming on, as well as Matt Ruches for producing this episode. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, we are off and running. We got all of our event registrations are live. We've got a good amount that are sold out. We've got a, uh, a few that have some spots left. A few that I wanted to feature 
Soul Park, our uh, event, the Boomerang in Ojai, California. That is in, in late April, April 24th, the Saturday in Ojai. I can't think of a better place to spend a weekend than uh, Ojai, California. It is. Uh, it would be a great that time of year. It's uh, you know the last couple of years we've had it there. It's been about seventy degrees and sunny both times. Really cool golf course, and uh, it's got super neat Gil Hansa design greens and really fun place to spend a day. If you're looking at it, you know it's a great place to spend a day with a significant other as well as spend a weekend with a significant other. Uh, lots of good restaurants and things to do in town. So check out the Boomerang if you're uh, if you're looking for something to do in late April. And thank you for listening to another edition of the podcast. We will be back on Friday with a new episode. Thank you guys again. 